Our scripture today is Genesis 50. So let us stand for the reading of the Word of God, the entire 50th chapter of Genesis. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now forty days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Now when the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will return. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, all the household of Joseph and his brothers, and his father's household. They left only little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor at Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation, and he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. And thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had brought, bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt. He and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we're your servants. And Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid, for am I in God's place? And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. 
So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. You may be seated. You believe we've preached almost 100 sermons, or maybe more than 100 sermons, on the book of Genesis. I'm ready to start all over again. We'll have one more sermon on it. It's been a great book. I, I don't believe that a person can really understand the rest of the Bible, the gospel, unless they understand the book of Genesis. If you're going to understand the Bible and the gospel, you've got to start where God started in the book of Genesis. What's the book of Genesis about? Historical narrative mostly. It has all kinds of stories about the early patriarchs and the people of God in the very beginning of the human race. Some of the stories are weird. Some of the stories are completely beyond our, our scope of understanding. But in these stories, in the book of Genesis, there's one thing that we see clearly, and that is the relentless faithfulness of God to his covenant bond with his people in Christ. You can't miss it. Everything that goes on from Adam to the very end of the book declares that God is faithful, even in spite of the unfaithfulness of his covenant people. That God made a bond, an eternal unbreakable bond with his people in Christ in which he would be their God and the God of their people down through thousands of generations. He promised that he and his people would give them a seed, a seed that would be primarily the Lord Jesus Christ. But then anybody who believes in Christ, regardless of ethnic origin, is also to be considered a part of that seed. And that seed, it says, is going to outnumber the stars of the sky, the sand on the seashore, the dust on the ground, and as he said in one of the latter chapters, and it's even going to be more numerous than fish. And every family on the face of the earth is going to be blessed by this seed. And Galatians 3 says the blessings that God's going to bring upon every family on this earth through this seed are the blessings of justification by faith in Christ alone and the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, when you have that many people down through the ages of men who believe in Christ and are heirs of the promises of God, they need a place to stand. They need a place to sit. They need a place to work. They need a place to worship. Uh, they need a place to raise their families. 
And so God says in this covenant bond, I'm going to give you a land. The down payment of that land will be the land of Palestine. The full payment will be the entire earth. Remember what Paul said about Abraham in Romans 4, that Abraham is heir of the world. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we've watched these promises come through, uh, true throughout the book of Genesis. You remember Genesis is divided into ten sections. Toledoth, you remember your Hebrew word you learned? A toledoth means an account of the a record of the accomplishment, accomplishments of somebody's life. And there's ten of those in the book of Genesis. And as those sections develop, the scene narrows down until we see it focused on one man in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the gospel of the seed. This is a record of the seed of, of David and of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is a thoroughly Christ-centered book from beginning to end. And uh, if you don't understand the covenant of God and you don't understand uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and how those two things fit together, you're not going to understand the gospel of the New Testament. And the way it ends is perfect. I mean, it ends with such hope and anticipation. And you say, are you crazy? It ends in a coffin. What's so great about that? That the title of the sermon is from the, uh, from the Garden to a Coffin. What's so hopeful about all these things going on? And then everybody winds up dead. And Jacob dies. And Joseph's in a coffin. So literally, that's the last sentence, verse 26. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt, period. That's hopeful. Wait till you get through hearing what Genesis 50 is about. And you'll realize it could not be any more hopeful for the people of God than the end like this. Genesis 50 has three testimonies in it to the grace of God. The purpose of Genesis 50 is to impress you with how great and sovereign and mighty the grace of God is. And there are three memorials, you might say, or three testimonies in Genesis 5 to the greatness of God's grace. You wouldn't expect these. First of all, there's the testimony of a funeral procession. Then, secondly, there's the testimony of divine providence. And then thirdly, there's a testimony of a coffin. And those three testimonies will impress you for the rest of your life on the greatness of God's faithfulness and the greatness of God's grace to his people in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's look at each one of these. Let's go back to the 50th chapter. And let's look at the first testimony. It is a funeral procession, and you have never been in a funeral procession like this funeral procession. So go back and notice every word. 
Joseph's father has died, Jacob. Uh, and so Joseph fell on his father's face, wept over him, kissed him. You notice how many times it talks about Joseph showing affection of some kind to his father or to his brothers. This was an affectionate man. You know, one of the traits of manhood in the modern 21st century, real men don't cry. Real men are cold and hard and unemotional. Real men do cry, and real men are affectionate, and real men do kiss their families and their loved ones. That is the sign of greatness. That's the sign of maturity. That's the sign of Christ-likeness. So don't think you have to meet the standard of the modern world of being a, an immovable, cold man that never cries. That's not maturity. That is not Christ-like. So as we read this chapter, you notice Joseph's tears. I mean, they're not just little tears. He falls on his father's face. And he kisses him over and over and over. And then in verse 2, he commands his slaves and his doctors, his physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. That's the covenant name of Joseph. Joseph died, and so he had the best doctors in Egypt embalming. It was a very long and complicated process. Notice verse 3, Now 40 days were required for the embalming, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70, 70 days. So embalming took about 40 days. Now let's say something about embalming. Why did Joseph embalm his father? Egyptian tradition. If you've ever seen National Geographic magazine, you've seen a mummy. You've seen somebody that's been embalmed. And Joseph is just doing what was Egyptian tradition, not on your life. Joseph embalmed his father because he loved his father's body. The father that raised him. He not only loved him halfway, he not only loved his spirit, he loved him body and soul. And you and I are, according to Scripture, never to treat our bodies or the bodies of our loved ones with disrespect. To never purposely scar them in any way. Much less to burn those bodies that we loved that took care of us through all our days. In cremation. In the Bible, their cremation was not something that the followers of God would ever think of doing. They treated their parents with love and affection 
and they embalmed them rather than putting it in and uh, cremating them. And that's the way you and I must think. Every body today wants to be cremated because it's cheaper, it's the fad, but you're burning your mother. You're burning your father. You're burning that person that loved you, the physical side of that person. And so you and I must put the whole idea of cremation out of our minds. And as we said before, if any of your parents ever ask you to cremate them, if they die before you, you don't have to pay any attention to them. They will never know. And so here you see the way Christians treat the beloved bodies of those whom they love throughout life. I think also embalming had another meaning to the people of God that it did not mean to the Egyptians. The Egyptians were famous for embalming, but I think they had different reasons and different purposes, particularly in the light of the fact that there is this light motif, there is this theme that goes throughout Genesis of bodily resurrection from the dead. You remember when God told Abraham to take Isaac up on the mountain and to sacrifice him, uh, that the people saw Abraham and Isaac going up on the mountain and they said, where are you going? Abraham said, uh, we are going up on the mountain to make a sacrifice, and then we are coming back down. So there's no doubt in my mind that Abraham thought he was going to have to kill his son, but God was going to raise him from the dead. At least that's what a commentary named by a man named Steiger believes. And if you don't have that commentary, it's great. He was a PCA elder. I don't think he's living now. But his name is Stigers, S-T-I-G-E-R-S. So, why did these covenant people embalm their loved ones? I think it was like a dim, a dark mirror of eternal physical incorruption. Embalm physically this one you love. And you see, you, I think you do that because it is a dim illustration of the eternal incorruption, body and soul, those who love the living God. So, it took 40 days for this embalming process to complete itself. But then the Egyptians wept for 70 days. The Egyptians wept for 70 days. This was a sheep herder. You remember what Joseph told his brothers? Now, when Pharaoh asks you what you do for a living, tell him you raise cattle. Don't tell him you're sheep herders because there's no lower form of life to an Egyptian than a sheep herder. And here you have the Egyptians weeping 70 days for this dead sheep herder. 
because they respected him, because they loved him, because they loved his son, Joseph, for saving their lives from death. You remember the, the uh, famine that was in Egypt was all over the world. It was a global famine. So that Joseph, as the number two man in Egypt, not only saved the lives of his brothers, but he saved the lives of the Egyptians and of anybody else in the whole wide world that would come to him for food. And so in verse 4, and when the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will return. Pharaoh said, Go ahead. Go bury your father because he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. You'd hate to get behind it on Georgia 20. <laughs> this was not a funeral procession from the church to the cemetery. This was a funeral procession from Egypt to Canaan. And not only was it comprised of the family of Jacob, it was comprised of the most powerful men in Egypt. What it says. It says that the servants of Pharaoh, that is his bureaucrats. And remember we've said before that the Egyptian bureaucracy was the biggest bureaucracy in the history of the world prior to the United States in the 20th century. Truly, that's not a hyperbole. And so he, all of the bureaucrats of the Egyptian dynasty are lined up behind this sheep herder. All the elders in Egypt. Now that's another word for leaders. All the leaders, all the influential men, all the powerful men in Egypt, they're lined up behind Jacob. Then you got the army. You got chariots, and you got horsemen, and there was a very great company. They were Egyptians who owned their lives 
It's Hebrews. I only know of one other man, one other Christian man that was treated this way when he died. That was J. Gresham Machen. J. Gresham Machen was one of the greatest preachers and scholars of the 20th century and more. He had radio programs, he wrote books. When he died, syndicated columnists in magazines and newspapers all over the world wrote obituaries. Non-Christian syndicated columnists wrote about his character and his life and his integrity. You and I should live in such a way that when we pass off the scene, the world will grieve over us. Not because they're simply glad to get rid of what we've been preaching and teaching. Because they respected our characters. They respected our integrity. Any non-believer is going to weep and cry, pass off the scene, or me. We're glad to get rid of what you're teaching. We're sorry that you've left the scene. Verse 10, when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation, and he observed seven days of mourning for his father. They kept crying. Now, why did they stop right there on the border? They, they were taking him into Canaan, promised land, to bury him because that's where he wanted to be buried. Why did this funeral procession stop on the border of Canaan? It didn't want to be influenced by these low-life, low-class pagans. So it stops right before he gets into the land of Canaan. And there they cry some more <coughs> and weep some more, this godly man. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. And thus the sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephraim the Hittite. And so they buried Joseph, uh, uh, Jacob. Now, that, why did J J uh, Jacob want to do that? That is a lot of trouble to have a funeral procession from Egypt to Canaan. A lot of trouble. So and jo Jacob knew it'd be troublesome. Why did he do it? To instill hope in his sons and their descendants. I don't own anything now. 
but I want you to bury me in this land because I'm absolutely confident that someday this promised land will be full of my descendants. So I don't want to be buried in Egypt. I'm famous. Everybody knows me. Everybody loves me. But I don't want to be buried in Egypt. I want to be buried in that land that God said is mine by covenant. So they bury this man in a, in a, a country that he didn't have anything in. Was absolutely confident that someday God would fulfill that promise to him and give the land of Canaan to his sons. You remember why they uh, went to Egypt in the first place? They went to Egypt because Egypt would be an incubator for a while. They went to Egypt because until the dominant evil of the Amorites had reached its high mark. The Canaanites were so wicked and so powerful and dominant in their wickedness that the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would never have been able to survive their influence. And they didn't for a while. One of the sons committed incest. Another one of the sons committed murder. They never would have survived if they'd stayed in Canaan. So God put them in the incubation of, of uh, Egypt for a while in the land of Goshen. Uh, to save them from the evil influence of the Canaanites. Verse 14. Let's go to verse 15 now. Right, this, we're coming now to the second memorial. This is the second testimony. The first testimony to God's grace is his funeral procession. Uh, for, for this great and godly man, Jacob, who was not godly all his life, but who by the grace of God was saved from sin and death. And the Egyptians couldn't miss it. There was something different about this man. God's grace had saved him and now they were putting him in the land of promise, burying him there in a land that didn't belong to him yet, with the confident assurance that some land, someday that land would be his. A testimony. His grave. A testimony to the relentless faithfulness. Now we got this second testimony here in his divine providence. Look what happens here. In verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, uh-oh. Now, that's in the Hebrew, but it's not in the English. <laughs> what if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong which he, we did to him? Dad's dead. How do we know now that Joseph won't change his mind? As long as daddy was alive, jo Joseph loved daddy, and he wasn't going to do anything to him. But now Jacob's dead. Is Joseph going to change his mind? Is, now, is he now going to pour out his vengeance 
on his brothers for what they did to him when they sold him into slavery. Verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, in other words, saying, all right now, Joseph, remember what daddy said. Daddy said this. Don't forget this. (laughs) So he says, thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your father, brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept. He spoke to them. My opinion, personal opinion is, there's not any more godly man in the whole Bible besides Jesus, than Joseph. The Bible never criticizes Joseph. And now he's weeping. He was weeping at his daddy's death. And now he's weeping because his brothers would think he would do such a thing. And it breaks his heart to find out that they think that way. Verse 18. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we're your slaves. So there's the fulfillment of prophecy again, right? You remember what Joseph did when he was a little boy that made his brother so mad? He said, Someday you're going to bow down before me and recognize my supremacy. Now, Joseph wasn't bragging. A lot of people say Joseph was a young guy that was feeling his oats, and, and uh, when God gave him this dream and told him that they were going to bow down before him, he wanted his brothers to know that for sure. No, remember, Joseph was a prophet. He was a prophet even when he was a young boy. And he was simply doing what he was supposed to do, and that is preaching the content of the revelation that he got from God. What else is a prophet to do? So he tells his brothers back when he was a little boy, Uh, someday in the future, you're going to look to me for salvation. And if you do not look to me for salvation, you will die of starvation. And the only way you will keep from starving is by bowing down before me and recognizing my supremacy. Remember, Joseph is a type of Christ. He's picturing for them the gospel. He's telling them the the whole world's starving to death. The whole world's dying. There's only one place in the whole world where you can find life, and that's the feet of the Hebrew. You don't bow down before that Hebrew. You die. That's the gospel, don't you think? So now it's coming true. And the brothers are bowing down in submission to Jesus Christ. And understand again, today our understanding of the gospel is so cheap, so counterfeit, where now we... It's so easy to become a Christian. 
we make a decision to follow Jesus. We ask Jesus into our heart. We do all these easy things, whereas becoming a Christian is not an easy thing. To receive the salvation that Christ offers, you must bow in total surrender, giving up everything you are and everything you have. Service. Or to put it more simply, you want to be saved from sin, death, and hell? You must become Christ's slaves. That's what they're telling him. We're your slaves, Joseph. Whatever you want us to do, we are your slaves. That is a picture of true faith. Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. For am I in God's place? Don't be afraid of me, brothers. I'm not God. I'm not going to pour out my vengeance upon you. I am God's man here on earth. As for you, over 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring these about this result to preserve many people alive. Your intentions and for selling me into slavery, and they were all evil. All your purposes in selling me into slavery were evil. Envy, jealousy, pride. But God had his purposes. And his purpose, as they always do, won out over yours. You meant it for evil selling me into slavery. God meant it for good. God won out. Man never does. So therefore, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now that's a great definition and example of providence. That in, in this life, if anything good happens, God gets all the credit. And if anything bad happens, you get all the blame. And that's the way it is. There is no other universe. You say, well, I just don't see how that can be. How can one act by a human being be at one and the same time the free act of a man following the desires and intentions of his own heart and the sovereign predestined act of Almighty God? How can it be? Well, it can be because that's the what God says about it. God says in this life, one act can be at one and the same time, an act of your free will, doing what you intended and desired to do, and a planned, foreordained act of Almighty God. And you say, I just don't see it. I don't see how one act can be a free, spontaneous act on the part of man and a sovereign act of Almighty God. 
You asked that person, where'd you get that? Who told you that it couldn't be that way? Told you that an act cannot be a free, spontaneous act of a human will and the sovereign act of God. Who, who told you that? And you would say, well, me. I told me that. So your basis on believing that one act can only be the act of either a sovereign God or a free will of man, but not both at the same time? And they say, yeah. And then you say, well, who in the world do you think you are? You tell me some can, something cannot be true unless it fits together in your sovereign mind. You think it fits together in my mind? That one act and one at the same time can be the free act of man and the sovereign act of God. You think I got it all figured out? You think I believe that because there was a time in my life when I rationalized how that could work out? No. I believe that for one reason. And that is because God says that's the way life is. If anything good happens, God gets all the credit and if anything bad happens, man gets all the blame, and that's the way it is in this universe. And there is no other universe. So you can plan for something to be done that's evil with evil results, and God punish you for it. And at the same time, that act is God carrying out his goodwill to accomplish his good purposes. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. I'm not mad at you anymore. I have no desire to show vengeance. Because I know that God's in control of life. So there you have the great testimony to God's faithfulness that his providence underlies everything that goes on in life. You see, free, the phrase free will is not that useful anymore. I, I still use it because there's a chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith called Of Free Will. But I, I think it communicates things that, that it shouldn't communicate. So when a modern person hears the phrase free will, he thinks sovereign will. I have a sovereign will. To do, well, I'll tell you what a famous evangelist said one time. I was in Kansas City in a big coliseum at this uh, evangelistic seminar. And uh, every night after the seminar, they would give, uh, have evangelistic services. And hundreds of people would come forward every night. And one night, this famous evangelist stood there in the pulpit. And he made me a Presbyterian, by the way. It's because this man said this that I became a Calvinist. He said, now you pray, pray for these people now that they'll make a decision. Pray, you prayed for them and that's why they came forward. But there's no use in praying for them anymore until they make a decision. Because God's done everything he can do. And... Uh, Uh, so God is dependent upon their decision now. And then he said, but 
I believe that God has given man a free will. And I thought, okay, well, good. Straightening up. I think God has given man a free will to do whatever he wants to do and to choose whatever he wants to choose, and God can't do a thing about it. I walked out. That's when I became a Calvinist. Poor old God. And so here you have a great testimony. Man has a will. He may, he's accountable for all of his choices. He's accountable for all of his intentions. He's going to be judged for everything he has done or will do by a living God. He does have a will. He can make choices. But his will is controlled by the will of God. Now, the one last part of this. Notice the last part of this uh, threefold testimony. It's quite a testimony. Verse 22. Now, Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. What a testimony to grace. Here's the number two man in all of Egypt. He said, here's what I want you to do. I'm getting old. I die, I want you to bury me in Canaan when y'all get there. Now, did you see the difference in the two uh, demands? Jacob said, I want you when I die, the moment I die, I want you to take me to, uh, to uh, Canaan, bury me. Joseph said, when I die, I want you to bury me in Canaan when y'all get there. Now, those are two different things. What is Jacob saying? When I die, I want you to take me to Canaan and bury me right then and there. What's he saying? Take your eyes off Egypt. Don't cling to Egypt. Joseph says, I want you to bury me in Canaan when y'all get there. That's after the exodus. That's after the wanderings in the wilderness. That's after the conquest and occupation of Canaan by Joseph. Notice, by the way, uh, by Joshua. Notice how the book of Joshua ends. Turn to the last verse, chapter 24. I mean, excuse me, yeah, chapter 24. 
verse 33. Verse 29. And it came about after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, on the north of Mount Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. I missed the text. Somewhere in this last chapter. What verse? 32. 32. Good to have a preacher here, you know. Now they buried the bones. There he is. That's, I told you he was a scholar. Didn't I tell you he was a scholar? <laughs> and they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem, in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money. And they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. Finally, he's buried. Can you imagine? He says, I want you to take my coffin, my bones in my coffin, and I want you to bury me in Canaan after you get there. So, they go back to Egypt from burying Jacob, Joseph lives several more years. Then he dies. He carries his bone to Egypt. And for generation after generation, people would see that coffin. Little children, when they were growing up, Hebrew children, throughout their young childhood, they'd see that coffin. Then when they became adolescents, They'd see that coffin. And then they'd get married. And they'd see that coffin. And then they'd have children. There's that coffin. And then the children would grow up and they'd have children. The coffin's still there. And then the grandchildren would come, come upon the scene. There's that coffin. And then they, Moses comes along and they go through the wilderness for 40 years. And for 40 years, somewhere or another, there's that coffin. And then Joshua conquers and occupies Canaan. They settle in Canaan. They start building a godly culture in Canaan. There's that coffin. They finally bury it. Joseph believed with all of his heart there was a time in which the people of God will inherit the earth. So what did Jacob say to them? Bury me in Canaan as soon as I die. Don't cling to Egypt. Joseph says, bury my body in Canaan, when there's a Christian culture there, 
and don't grow weary of Egypt. Don't cling to Egypt with its culture, its evil, its idolatry. Don't cling to this evil culture, Joseph says, but persevere in well-doing and don't give up trying to build a Christian culture in the promised land. Those are great words of hope. Those are words that we should say to ourselves. Don't cling to Atlanta, Georgia. But don't grow weary either. Of building a Christian culture in this world. Until you see it built. Let us pray. We thank you, Father, for these great testimonies to your sovereign grace and relentless mercy. We thank you for what we can learn from these words. Pray that we will never get so attached to the evil culture in which we live that we'll seek to stay in it even if it means being damned. We know, Lord, there'll be times of persecution, slavery, opposition. Lord, help us to never grow weary in well-doing, knowing that we shall reap if we do not faint. Help us not to faint by, keep, by, by keeping the eyes of our hope fixed on your sovereign providence, on your faithfulness to promise. 